0: Sound Words. Christian Magazine, Volumes 51 60. Republished by Irving Risch, host of Down to Earth But Heavenly Minded Podcast. Eternal Life Part 2 Feet Eternal Life in John's Gospel. The term Eternal Life or Everlasting Life, for they are the same in the original Greek, is found more often in the writings of the Apostle John than in any of the other writings of Scripture. And as often as in all the others put together. This clearly shows the importance of this subject in John's writings. Moreover John presents this subject in a very distinctive way for as we shall see he views eternal life as the present portion of all who truly believe in the son of god we do not have to wait until we reach heaven to possess eternal life we already have it in the son by faith in him life exists inherently in the son of god even as we read in john chapter 1 verse 4 in him was life and this is true in regard to all life he is the source of it the originator of life and coming into the world The life was the light of men. In the Son of God incarnate there was manifested, the eternal life that was with the Father, a life that had never been seen in this world before. Eternal life in its very nature is eternal, without beginning and without end, and the Son who had ever dwelt with the Father came to reveal God and to manifest the eternal life in testimony to men. Coming into the world, the Son, as the true light, shone for every man. It was not a testimony confined to Israel, but was for all, that all might see God in a way in which he had never been known before, but such was man's state of darkness, as under the influence of the God of this world, that he was unable to apprehend the divine light shining so brightly in the Son of God. God had revealed himself to Abraham as the Almighty, and to Israel as Jehovah, but eternal life was not manifested in these revelations, blessed as they were. The eternal life could not be made known until the Son came with the knowledge of the Father, for the eternal life belongs to the name of Father, and to the relationships and affections connected with the Father and the Son. In Matthew chapter 11 verse 27, the Son said, Nor does anyone know the Father, but the Son, and he to whom the Son may be pleased to reveal him. Only the Son. Whoever dwells in the bosom of the Father, was competent to make God known, and in wondrous grace he laid aside his glory to be found as man here below to bring this blessed knowledge to us. Heavenly things. In chapter 3 the Lord had been bringing before Nicodemus the necessity of the new birth for entry into the kingdom of God, and said, If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe, if I tell you of heavenly things? John chapter 3 verse 12. God's kingdom, in its present phase, is earthly as belonging to our sojourn on earth, but eternal life is altogether heavenly, it belongs to heaven, even if manifested by the Son of God who came down from heaven. And it is in this connection that the Lord said, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of man which is in heaven, John chapter 3 verse 13. Eternal life could never have been acquired by man apart from the coming of the Son. It was impossible for any man to ascend up to heaven where eternal life belonged to have part in the joys of that blessed scene. Not even Adam innocent could have gone there, much less any of his defiled and guilty progeny. Only the Son of Man who came down from heaven to make known the mind of God could, in his own right, ascend up where he was before, and, being a divine person, could add. Even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Such is the mystery of his person that the Lord could speak of himself as being in heaven, though a man upon earth. While perfect man, he can never cease to be what he ever was and is, the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father, and dwelling in light unapproachable, which no man hath seen or can see. But his coming into the world to manifest eternal life could not communicate it to men, for this it was necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And of this there was a foreshadowing in Moses lifting up the brazen serpent. The Israelites who had been bitten by the serpents were dying men, and were beyond human aid, only divine intervention could procure life for them, and, at the intercession of Moses, God instructed his servant to make a serpent of brass, and whosoever looked at the brazen serpent received life. Like the stricken Israelites, every man born into the world has been smitten, and on account of sin lies under the sentence and power of death, only the sovereign intervention of God can aid him and we can thank God that he has come to our help in the person of his Son. The Son of God was not only willing to come and manifest the eternal life, but also to die to make it available for us. Although eternal life is made available to all through Christ's death, God has made it abundantly plain that it can only be procured through faith in his Son. Only the Israelites who believed Moses, and looked to the serpent of brass, were rescued from the clutch of death. And so it is with men today. Men may reason, and say, how can we receive life by believing in one who was crucified on a cross, and who did not save himself? The simple answer is that Jesus died to take our sins away, that we might not perish in our sins, and God not only grants to us forgiveness of sins, but also communicates to us the eternal life when we believe on his Son. Because of sin, men are perishing, and they can do nothing to save themselves. It was infinite and sovereign love that caused God to intervene on man's behalf, and to give his Son, that the one who truly believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Without eternal life, man must perish, his life on earth has been forfeited because he has sinned, but the wondrous compassion of God has been made known in sending his only Son, his love gift, to men, that they might have a life that death could not touch he that believeth, hath everlasting life, if the word in John chapter 3 verses 15 to 16 is that the one who believes should have eternal life. It is very definite in John chapter 3 verse 36 of the same chapter that the believer on the Son hath eternal life. The present possession of eternal life by the believer is not only stated here, but is also emphasized in John chapter 5 verse 24, and John chapter 6 verses 47, 54. It is indeed wonderful that believers can pass through this world with the sure knowledge that they now have eternal life. We do not have to wait until we get to heaven either to receive this divine life, or to learn whether it is ours or not, we have it now, and we have the assurance of possessing it now by the word of God. Eternal life is the life that belongs to the children of God, and the veriest babe in God's family, as having the Holy Spirit can say, Abba, Father, in writing to the babes in the family. The Apostle John says, I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father, 1 John chapter 2 verse 13. God's children have been begotten of him, and faith in the Son has enabled the believer to take his place in God's family and to know the relationships and affections that belong to all who are his children. It was not possible for the saints of old to know that they were children of God, even though they were born of God. This knowledge awaited the revelation of the Father in the person of the Son. We can see from John's writings how that the knowledge of our place as children is intimately bound up with the manifestation of eternal life in the Son of God, and with our possession of life in the Son in the presence of God. This enhances for us the revelations that were made by the Son incarnate, and brings out the immensity of the blessing brought to light in the person of the Son. A well of water. The conversation between the Lord Jesus and the woman by Seitch's well introduces to us the subject of living water. Jesus said to the woman, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water The Lord had come to give to men that which would satisfy the longings of the soul. In the previous chapter he had made it clear that the blessing from God was not to be confined to Israel for God so loved the world, went over the middle wall of partition that separated Israel from the Gentiles, and, whosoever, made it available to every man under heaven. The opening of the conversation by the Lord made it plain that he was not bound by Jewish prejudices, and that blessing for the Gentiles, though founded as all divine blessing is on the work of the cross, was available in him while in this world. Living water was not only the gift of God, but it was given by the Son of God come from the Father. Water from Jacob's well could only meet the present need of the body, which constantly recurred, but living water meets the need of the soul forevermore. Once the soul has drunk the living water, the need is forever met, for the heavenly gift becomes in the soul a spring that rises up in thanksgiving, praise, and worship to its source in God. The well within the believer is surely the divine life that is received by the Spirit of God. For the Christian, there is not only the life within received through the Spirit, but life in the power of an indwelling Spirit as having a divinely communicated life, the believer is able to enjoy all that has been revealed by the Son of God, all that belongs to the new life that the Son has made known. This life was not only entirely different to the life known to the woman of Sukkah, but just as different from the life in which the religious leaders of Israel lived with all the ritual and ceremony of Judaism. Fruit unto life eternal. Unable to understand the ways of God, the disciples marveled that he talked with the woman of Sukkah, but they made no comment for they evidently felt the perfection of their master's actions even if incomprehensible to them. When they asked Jesus to eat, he told them that he had meat to eat of which they were unaware, then explained, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. But the disciples had been called to labour in God's harvest field as reapers, and of their labour the Lord said, He that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. John chapter 4 verse 36. For their work, the disciples would receive their wages, a reward that they would highly value, even as John showed in his letter to the elect lady and her children, when he wrote, look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward, Second John chapter 8. This reward they will have from Christ in the day of his glory in having part with him in his kingdom. These wages, are not for the twelve alone, but for all who serve our Lord Jesus in faithfulness here below. The fruit that is reaped to life eternal are those who are brought through the labours of the servants of the Lord to enjoy the blessings of eternal life. Here the fruit is gathered, but soon there will be the display of those procured for Christ's glory in that day, even as Paul wrote, for what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are glory and joy. 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 19-20 Almost all, if not all the mentions of eternal life in John's Gospel are from the lips of the Son of God, which surely emphasizes the important place this precious subject had in the ministry of the Lord. There could not be the manifestation of the eternal life except in the person of the Son, for he personally expressed it, but he also spoke of it in the wondrous details that are given in this Gospel. It is indissolubly bound up with the manifestation of the Father's name, which none knew until the Son of God came into the world to make it known he that heareth my word. All that the Son spoke he received from the Father, and he never claimed to be the source of his communications. Yet he could say, my word, for what he did speak was peculiarly his own, for he only could speak the wonderful words that the Father gave him. In John's Gospel, the word of the Son was the divine unfolding through him of all that lay in the Father's heart for the blessing of men. And this was bound up with the revelation of God as Father. From heaven, in Revelation chapter 3 verse 8, we hear the Lord say to the church in Philadelphia, Thou, hast kept my word, a commendation that we might well value and seek. In John, his word is to be heard, in Revelation, it is to be kept. There were many who listened to the words of the Lord Jesus who did not hear his word. To hear his word there must needs be an ear to hear, and only those in whom God had wrought had this capacity. Such one was Mary of Bethany, who also sat at Jesus's feet, and heard his word, Luke chapter 10 verse 39. Hearing his word is a mark of a true follower of the Lord Jesus, it is the evidence of valuing and seeking to know the substance, spirit and details of the divine revelation that has been brought to men in the person of Jesus. Connected with the hearing of the word of the Son there was the believing on him that sent him. For the knowledge of the Father set forth in the word of the Son was received by faith in the hearts of those who heard his word. In John chapter 3, the possession of eternal life depended on faith in the Son, here the faith is in the Father who sent the Son. Whatever the Jews might profess in that day, or others in this day, there can be no separation of the Son and the Father. Those who refuse to honor the Son do not honor the Father, nor can there be faith in the Father if there is no faith in the Son. Eternal life then is the portion of all who hear the word of the Son and who have faith in the Father. It is not that they shall have it, but that they do have it. We might look at it in this way, that all who have eternal life have these two marks, they hear the testimony of the Son that he has brought from the Father. And they believe on him who is presented to them in the testimony of the Son. We are living in a day when there is much profession, but so many who profess to be followers of Christ reject his testimony. They know not the Father revealed in the Son, never having received the divine and eternal life through faith in Him who came from God. Those who possess eternal life will never come into judgment, for the One who came to make the life available to them through His death was about to bear the judgment for them on the cross. They will indeed be manifested before the judgment seat of Christ, to receive the things done in the body, but they themselves will never come into judgment. For all who come into judgment must receive the reward of the deeds. It is impossible to have life eternal and then be banished forever from the face of God, for this is the portion of those who will stand before the bar of Christ at the great white throne. Already the believer, who has accepted God's testimony of and in his Son, is passed out of death into life. Death has no claim upon the one for whom Jesus died. It is true that he may be called upon to pass through the article of death, but the Son of God has already brought him into a realm of life that knows no death. This is where the believer really belongs as having eternal life he belongs to another world altogether of which the man of the world knows nothing the world of the father and the son death reigns in this world where the believer lives in his mixed condition but in the realm of life in which he lives with christ there is no death it is as having eternal life that we are beyond the reach of death and in this life the believer does not see or taste of death john chapter 8 verses 51 to 52 ye search the scriptures. It was most solemn that the very people who were searching the scriptures for eternal life were persecuting and seeking to kill the one who had come to manifest eternal life to them. Although eternal life was not to be obtained by searching the scriptures, it would be found in him of whom the Old Testament scriptures spoke, and he had come to Israel, but they would not have him. In rejecting the one who had been promised in the law and the prophets, the Jews were rejecting the only one who could give them the eternal life. Even if there is not much said in the Old Testament of eternal life, it would appear that when the Lord was here the subject was often on the lips of the people. The lawyer and the young ruler, who came to the Lord at different times, both asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The third verse of Psalm chapter 133 was evidently much before them. They no doubt longed for the time when the kingdom would be established under Messiah, when the scattered tribes of Israel would be regathered, never more to separate to enjoy, life forevermore, in a world of peace and plenty. There had been abundant proof as to who Jesus was, he had just recalled to them the witness of John the Baptist, the works of power they had seen which he had received from the Father, and the voice of the Father which had declared him as his beloved Son. But with these remarkable witnesses before them, and with the added witness of the Scriptures, they would not come to the Son of God to receive the life that he alone could give them. The scribes had been able to tell Herod where Christ would be born, and many other scriptures the leaders and people of Israel were able to quote, but their eyes were blinded, their hearts were far from God. Their attitude to Jesus clearly proved that they hated the Father and the Son, the meat which endures to everlasting life. Jesus had fed the multitude with loaves and fishes, and they would gladly have made him their king. A king who would satisfy them with bread, who was able to meet their every temporal need, they would willingly receive. It was not the miracle in itself that manifested the greatness of Christ's person that attracted them, it was the provision he had made for their bodies. Their minds and hearts were not concerned with spiritual things, it was what was material and temporal that wholly engaged them. They did not seek Christ for himself, but for what he was able to give. Having exposed the motives of those who would have made him a king, the Lord added, labor not for the meat which perisheth. Their whole outlook was on present things, not on things eternal. After the Lord had left the scene of the miracle, they had been very diligent in seeking Him out, but they were laboring for the provision of what belonged to time and sense. He would have them to be really in earnest as regards spiritual and heavenly things. Men today are no different. There might be great religious pretension, and abundant labor, but alas, it is for the meat which perisheth. Beneath the surface of religious activity, zeal and display, the true motive of the heart is so often self and not Christ, present things not the eternal. It may not always be the needs of the body that control men, but all their activities, whether to meet these needs, or to satisfy some ambition, can be summed up as the meat which perisheth. For every desire that is not for Christ will be for what comes to an end with the present life or order of things. Our labor should be, for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Lord gives to those who seek it. This is a challenge to our every heart. Are all our energies concentrated on obtaining that which will endure, that which is divine and heavenly, that which is spiritual and eternal? Alas, so much of our lives is given up to what is perishing. We must labor to provide for things that are necessary for our present life, but present things should not absorb us or be the motive of our hearts. Christ desires to meet every longing of the heart after himself, and after the things of the Father that he brought down from heaven to satisfy the desires God has implanted within us the father's will the son of god came into the world to accomplish the father's will and to make it known to those the father had given him out of the world for himself the father's will was a delight but it brought him into untold suffering and sorrow but he was prepared to pass through all that the cross involved so that his father's will might be accomplished but the will of the father had infinite and eternal blessing for those who loved his son even as jesus said for this is the will of my father that everyone who sees the son and believes on him, should have life eternal, and I will raise him up at the last day, chapter 06 verse 40. There were many who looked upon Jesus who did not discern that he was the Son. Some could only regard him as the son of the carpenter, others thought him to be John the Baptist, risen from the dead, or one of the prophets. It was the revelation of the Father to Simon Peter that enabled him to say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That, no doubt, was a special revelation but only the work of the Father in any man can enable him to see the Son, to discern the glory of Christ's person so as to believe on him. Once again we learn that faith in the Son brings life eternal. How very important this matter is when it is so often upon the lips of the blessed Son of God. Under the law there had been the promise of life through keeping the commandments, and this the Lord had brought to the attention of the rich young ruler. But no one had ever been able to continue his life on earth on this principle of legal obedience, much less receive the blessing of eternal life. We can therefore see the reason for the Lord so often stressing that it was only by faith that eternal life could be received. There had never been any other principle on which man had obtained divine blessing. But man had been under law so that it might be made plain to all that it was impossible to get blessing by works of law. It is not by our own will that we obtain eternal life. Left to ourselves we must have perished forever. Even where there was the desire to receive divine blessing, as in the case of the young ruler, the love of present possessions outweighed the desire to be blessed. No one, left to himself, would ever seek after the eternal life that is in the Son of God. One might desire to be in heaven after life on earth is over. But only the working of the Father's grace could ever draw us to the Son in whom the divine blessing is for poor, wretched sinners. In wondrous grace, the Father has willed that those who see the Son, and believe on him should have the richest blessing that it is possible for him to bestow upon the creature. In John chapter 6, the feeding of the multitude was without doubt a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 132 verse 15, I will abundantly bless her provision, I will satisfy her poor with bread. Though the full answer to the prophecy awaits the millennial blessing of Israel through Messiah. But the coming into the world of the Son of God could not be confined to the blessing of Israel. The counsels of God had something much greater in view, even the glory of redemption. And the procuring of a bride for his son, and sons who would be in his own house forevermore. The work of redemption would deal with the whole question of sin, and enable God to bring into being new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness would dwell. I am the bread of life. When the Jews realized that the Lord would not take the kingdom from their hand, and that he demanded faith in his person, they exposed the unbelief of their hearts in saying, What sign showest thou then, that we may see, and believe thee? What dost thou work? Then they belittled the miracle of the feeding of the five thousand when they said, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. It was as much as to say. The feeding of the multitude is a small matter compared with what Moses gave to Israel in the forty years' sojourn in the wilderness. The reply of the Lord was that it was not Moses that supplied the heavenly bread, it was his father, who was now supplying the bread of which a manna was but a type. He was the true bread, the bread of God, the living bread, the bread of life. The manna sustained the natural life in Israel, but the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. The life that the Son of God had come to give unto the world was an altogether different life from that which Adam received from God, and different from anything that Israel as a nation knew as God's people in this world. Hunger and thirst belong to man's natural life in this world, not only physically, but also in natural desire after that which will satisfy the soul, a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. Man may gratify his natural desires, he can never satisfy them. But the life that the Lord Jesus came to impart was one in which there is true satisfaction. Every desire of the heart is satisfied not only by him, but with him. He is the one through whom the divine life is communicated to us, and the one in whom every desire is fully satisfied. Life derived from Adam, even though divinely sustained, as Israel's was, by the manna, comes to an end, even as the Lord said to the Jews, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. How very different is the life of those who feed upon the bread of life, even as Jesus said, This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof, and not die. Life forevermore, had been promised to Israel, it had come in the person of Jesus, the living bread, for, if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. A life over which death had no power was something new for this world, it was here in Jesus, but only faith could perceive it. Moreover, it was difficult for the disciples then to apprehend this, for Jesus spoke of his death, the laying down of his life before taking it again. But it was life in flesh and blood conditions he laid down, and this in order that he might make available for his own the life eternal in which they would live forevermore with him in his father's house, from whence he had come, and whither he was bound to prepare a place for them. Whoso eateth my flesh, hath eternal life an incarnate son of God could manifest eternal life, but if men were to receive it he must die, and they must appropriate his death. The life that man has naturally is not really life, for the sentence of death rests on it, therefore the Lord said, except ye shall have eaten the flesh of the son of man, and drank his blood. Ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is only by having Christ in us by feeding on his death that we have life in us, the life that can never die. As we feed upon Christ's death we feed upon the love of the Father and the Son made known in that wondrous death. For the life that God has given to us is a life of divine relationships and affections that can never cease. All the relationships and affections of nature, precious as they are, are ended by death but we shall forever feed upon the blessed affections that were made known to us in the death of the Son of God in the Father's house above, his children then as now, and the brethren of Christ. The divine relationships and affections belong to heaven, but we enjoy them now, and in a special way as we contemplate all that God is as made known in the gift of his own Son. Our communion with and testimony to the Son of God are bound up with our appreciation of his death, which enables us to apprehend the meaning of, He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood. Dwelleth in me, and I in him. Very soon we shall dwell with him in our heavenly home, but while here it is our privilege to dwell in him. He himself is the dwelling place of his people, and their hearts are to be his dwelling place, so that the eternal life, in all its precious features, that were perfectly expressed in him while here, might be continued in us in testimony for him during his absence. Thou hast the words of eternal life. The words to which the disciples of the Lord had listened as he spoke to the Jews were very wonderful. But many who professed to be followers of the Lord were offended by them. A Christ who could satisfy them with bread they were prepared to follow, but the Son of Man who spoke of dying they would not follow. His words concerning his death were, anhard hard saying, for them, and they murmured against it. He would ascend up where he was before, but after he had passed through death to make his flesh and blood available for his own. They could not possess eternal life, or enter into the full blessedness of his love, unless they fed upon his death when the mere professors went back, and walked no more with him, the Lord challenged the twelve with these words, Will ye also go away? How noble were the words of Simon Peter, who spoke not only for himself, but for those who had been the companions of the Lord with him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. The person of the Son of God was the attraction for those who had been drawn to him by the Father. And this is made most manifest in this hour of crisis, when the disciples who had been drawn by the prospect of temporal things walked no more with Jesus, John chapter 6 verse 66. Moreover, the very words that had caused the false disciples to go back were the words that held the hearts of Simon and his fellows. John the Baptist had preached very powerfully, and his message of the coming kingdom had attached many to him, but he had not the words of eternal life. Such words as Jesus spoke had never been spoken before. Even the officers who were sent to apprehend Jesus, of which we read in John chapter 7, said, Never man spake like this man. Peter might not have been able, at that time, to apprehend much of the meaning of what Jesus was saying, not having yet received the Holy Spirit, but the words of Jesus acted powerfully on his heart, and bound him more closely to Jesus than ever before. Whatever the detailed import of the wonderful words to which they had just listened, Peter knew them to be words of eternal life, words with their own peculiar message from God. And with a particular charm and drawing power for those who were true disciples of the Son of God. Of these words, the Lord had just said, the flesh profiteth nothing, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. The flesh, as spoken of by the Lord here, would involve the whole of man's existence in present things apart from God. Man's life naturally consists of the things that engage him in this world, and they profit him nothing because death finishes them forever. His life is a life of flesh, a life of natural desires in which he seeks to gratify the nature into which sin has entered. It is not a question here as to the evil of man's flesh, but of the whole course of human life that occupies itself with present things in contrast to the eternal things. The words spoken by the Lord were not for the prosperity of men in temporal things, but for their eternal blessing. His words were, Spirit and Life. They were for the spiritual blessing of all men, and brought eternal life to whosoever received them. The life of the Lord Jesus in manhood clearly made known that He had not come to make this world better, or to improve the lot of His disciples in it. He was not indifferent to man's lot, His sympathies and compassions were deeply affected by the sorrows and sicknesses of men his turning the water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the man at Bethesda, and the feeding of the five thousand, had already proved that Jesus was not indifferent to the things belonging to men in this world. And later, the opening of the eyes of the blind, the raising of Lazarus, his weeping and groaning and his committing his mother to the care of John, all abundantly testify to his compassions and affections, and his regard for the relationships and conditions of human existence. But all these things will come to an end, and only as we bring the light of heaven into the realm of natural affections and relationships will there be any lasting profit. And it is lasting profit that was before the mind of Jesus. In the light of eternity what does it matter what a man possesses in this world? His possessions will only profit him if they are used in the service of the Lord. If they are used for the gratification of the flesh, he will find in the end that they have profited him nothing. This is not only a word for those whose lives are holy in present things, it has a powerful voice for those of us who have received the gift of eternal life. Oh, that we let the words of the Son of God, the words of spirit and life, sink deeply into our hearts, so that we might be the more engaged with the things that are eternal. The things that the Son of God brought down from heaven, and that are in him where he is in heaven. Very soon, the things of flesh will be forever gone, and only the things of spirit and life will remain. We shall be engaged with the Son of God in heaven when we are with Him there, but He desires that we should be occupied with Himself and His things now, the things of eternal life, while waiting to be with Him in the Father's house for eternity. If it is impossible to define life, whether natural or eternal, it is nevertheless possible for us to apprehend in what life consists. We know that man could not live without the blood that courses through his veins, for the life is in the blood, and we also know that human life consists in the relationships, affections, pleasures and pursuits that belong to men. In the same way we can apprehend that divine life has been communicated to those who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is altogether different from the natural life that is in flesh and blood, and is heavenly and spiritual, and ours because the Son could say, I in them. This life also consists in divine relationships and affections, with pleasures and pursuits altogether unknown to the natural man.